0: Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament, just about two-thirds of the way through, if perhaps you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture. And we'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 this evening. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 will be our text. And with God's Word opened before us, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that it teaches us about who you are and about what you require of us. We ask that you would speak now for your servants are listening. Would you give us ears then to hear? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. I'm sure you've heard of these new uh, things that are becoming more and more popular, especially among celebrities and and athletes, if you followed the Aaron Rodgers saga of last off-season, you'll know what this is. They're called sensory deprivation chambers. A sensory deprivation chamber is a place that someone who has far too much money and time goes in order to experience the sense of nothingness. All your senses are deprived of their ability to orient you. It's total darkness. Total darkness, like center of the Earth kind of darkness. You can't see your hand move in front of your face. And the idea is that all visual distractions are removed from your mind. Total silence. Not only does no sound get in, <coughs> excuse me, but every sound you make is absorbed by the material these chambers are made of. So even your own breathing and the sound of your own heartbeat and the sound of your own voice almost disappears into nothing. Total silence. They even make sensory deprivation chambers where you float they have uh, heavily salted water so your buoyancy is increased and you float so that you don't even experience the feeling of gravity while you're in these sensory deprivation chambers they're used for healing they're used for times of contemplation or they're used as we already mentioned to waste money but these things have the threat of being quite dangerous Uh, Too long a time in one of these sensory deprivation chambers can lead to mental disturbances because of the total lack of silence and interaction. Just the lack of uh, of visual uh, um, perception and the lack of feeling of your own weight is somewhat disturbing to people who aren't used to that experience. Now when we find John the Baptist here preaching repentance in Matthew chapter 3, especially in verse 2 we're sort of entering into a sensory deprivation chamber that Israel has been in for some 400 years. Total silence from the Lord. No vision. They've had no glimpse of God, no word, no taste of manna from heaven, no experience of the nearness of God with His people. You'll recall that some 600 years earlier, the Spirit of the Lord, the glory of God, departed from the temple in Ezekiel's ch- chapters 10 and 11. They've had nothing of God, not a peep in 400 years, total silence. The people of God had been in a sort of sensory deprivation chamber all those years. 400 years, not dissimilar to Israel in Egypt, is it? As we've been looking at the book of Exodus in the morning. And similarly, again, right before God decides to affect the redemption of his people, as he's about to do through Christ... He sets ablaze a man's heart to proclaim the truth of who God is and of how far we are from him. This is God's pattern in redemptive history. As the people grow farther and farther distant from the Lord, as their hearts harden under the darkness and silence of sensory deprivation, God sets ablaze a man as a prophet to go to his people to proclaim to them who God is and what he requires of those who would seek him moses was chosen to prepare the way for the coming exodus and now Ma- excuse me john the baptist here in matthew is doing much the same thing we're we are not in a sensory deprivation chamber in the 21st century are we and i'm not even referring to social media and cell phones and computer screens and televisions and advertisements and so forth i mean god has not been silent for the last 400 years In fact, I would suggest that God has never spoken as much as he has in the past 2,000 years because every time we open this book, we hear his voice. God speaks to us every day, and every day we can hear his voice if we're listening, if we're listening. And so the question for us to ask ourselves this evening is this, am I listening as God speaks to me? Do I hear And perhaps more importantly, do I heed his message? our text this evening, we see John the Baptist is preaching a particular message, and it's a message designed to prepare the way for the coming King. John the Baptist is preaching a message of preparation, make way for the coming King, make straight his paths in the wilderness, he says. And his message for us is threefold. And each element of his message is part of the preparatory work he was sent to do. And I want us to consider these three points as a sort of outline for us. These three points are an outline for what it means for us to prepare our hearts for the King of Kings. How do we prepare our hearts for the King of Kings? How do we make straight the paths in our hearts for Christ? Hearts, I want to show you, are prepared for the Lord First of all, by speaking clearly about sin. Hearts are prepared for the Lord by speaking clearly about sin. Secondly, hearts are prepared for the Lord by warning against false conversions. Hearts are prepared for the Lord by warning against false conversions. And then lastly, hearts are prepared for the Lord by pointing men and women to Christ alone. Hearts are prepared for the Lord by pointing men and women to Christ alone. Firstly, we see John speaking clearly about sin. Now, there's a little bit of background we need to deal with here. It tells us in verse 3, chapter 1, when John's message takes place, it says, In those days, in those days. Now, we could take that sort of uh, uh, simply to say, in the days before Jesus' ministry in the days when after Herod was killing the children and Jesus and his family returned to Nazareth, uh, in those days, really we understand about 25 to possibly 30 years has passed between the birth story and the baptism of Jesus. And so perhaps Matthew is simply saying in the days before leading up to Jesus' earthly ministry, but something else is actually going on here. The days that Matthew is speaking of are the end of the Old Testament era, and the inauguration of the new covenant reality. Uh, John the Baptist serves as the end of the Old Testament era. This is kind of an interesting thing for us to think about for a minute. When we read our Gospels, which occur on the right-hand side of this page in our Bibles that says the New Testament, every word of the Gospels leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ is Old Testament material. Jesus inaugurates the new covenant at the Lord's Supper, at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And it's as his blood is poured out on the cross and his death and burial and resurrection that the new covenant is made a reality for the people of God. Everything leading up to that is Old Testament material. And so John marks the end of the Old Testament era as the last prophet. In these days, Matthew says, in the last days of the old covenant, which overlap perfectly, with the inauguration of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And so in these last days, what we're seeing is that there, in these days, as John refer, or Matthew refers to them here in Matthew chapter 3, we see that the end of the Old Testament is upon us and the beginning of the new, of the end times, the last days, the inaugurated last days in Jesus Christ are upon us. And so John marks the end of the prophetic promises of the coming Messiah. All of the Old Testament material leading up to John reciting here, quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6, or Isaiah chapter 40, excuse me, is about the coming Messiah. And yet now, in Jesus, he's no longer the coming Messiah. He's the here Messiah. And so the time is changing for the people of God. No longer are we awaiting, now we are experiencing the reality of Christ. Likewise, in these days, in those days, marks the end of the period of silence. Jesus will spend the next three years speaking boldly and preaching boldly the kingdom of heaven. And following him for some 30 to 60 years, the apostles of the New Testament will continue to proclaim the word of God verbally and inscripturate that word in the Bible for us. And so it's the end of the period of silence. It's upon us here in Matthew chapter 3. For 400 years, there had been no voice in Israel, no preaching of repentance, no preaching about God. There was plenty of religion in those days, wasn't there? The Pharisees and Sadducees are right here with us in verse 7. The religious leaders of the day, they were around. There was plenty of religion going on, but there was no prophetic voice proclaiming the realities of sin and the need for repentance. No one magnifying the Messiah and giving all glory to God. And yet that's exactly what the church needs, isn't it? The church needs the proclamation of the kingdom of God. It needs to be reminded of the seriousness of sin and the need to repent. It needs for men to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and to point to Him alone as the way for salvation. It's what the church in Jesus' day needed, and it's what we need today. And this is the message of John the Baptist. Sin and repentance Repent, he says in verse 2. Very simply, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message for the church. I'm sure you've noticed that this is the exact same message that Jesus preaches in chapter 4, verse 19. We'll get here shortly, but after Jesus' wilderness temptation, and he begins to uh, call his first disciples, it tells us that he, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 17 From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, here it is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the exact same message. This is very important for us to see for two reasons. Number one, we're meant to see the continuity between John's preaching and Jesus' preaching. If John marks the end of the old covenant era and Jesus marks the beginning of the new, it's noteworthy that they're saying the same exact thing, isn't it? It's noteworthy that John does not say to them, Obey the law. Rather, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus says the exact same thing at the outset of his ministry, which coincides perfectly with the end of the Old Testament era. We see John and Jesus proclaiming the same message, the same message for God's people as it's always been, as it is today, is Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. That's what John preached, and it's what Jesus preached, and it's what we continue to preach, that men and women and boys and girls need to repent of their sins and turn to Christ alone for salvation because the King has arrived. Secondly, there's not only continuity, but in the midst of everything that John and Jesus will say, there is a simple core message John does uh, all sorts of things. He baptizes, he uh, fulfills prophecies, he confronts Pharisees, he explains the Holy Spirit, and more. Jesus, likewise, will preach about judgment, about charity, about lust, about anger, about forgiveness, and a host of other significant topics. But at the core of both of their messages is the simple refrain, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, as it's referred to in Luke and John's gospel especially, is at hand. Now, do you hear the urgency in their message? Can you hear the urgency in the message of John the Baptist? Repent. Why? Because it's here now. There's an immediacy to John's message. He wants the people near him to understand the significance, the weight of their sin and their need for repentance. There's an urgency there's a response that should grip all of us <clears throat> when we hear the news that the kingdom of God is here. And by implication, it means the king has arrived. Many of you, I'm sure, have had the experience of a high-ranking person in your company coming for a visit. The CEO, perhaps, or the principal, or the, or the chief resident, or something like that. And you know that there's a rush of activity to get everything ready for their visit, to get everything in order for their arrival, to be prepared for the, visit, for the visit. And John wants us to be prepared for the visit of the king, and the order of the day is simple. It's repent. That's what John tells the people to do. Well, what do we mean by repent? Repent. I think there's a few common misconceptions that we need to address and and then a very simple explanation of what it means to repent. Many of you have heard me say this before. My favorite question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is question 87. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is when a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, doth with grief and hatred for his sin turn from it unto God. With full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's a really rich answer that we don't have the time to go into all the details of. But there's a few very important things that we must take note of. Repentance unto life. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. In other words, where does it come from? It comes from God. The ability even to repent comes from God. It's a saving grace from God that we're even able to do so do so Jesus tells Nicodemus unless you're born again you can't even see the kingdom of heaven let alone desire it let alone repent and turn unto the king of it which is why one of the major tenets of the reformed faith is that regeneration precedes faith isn't it we have to be born again made alive given the spirit in order to even enable us to turn from our sin unto God but the catechism tells us that repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner well who's that That's all of us, isn't it? But it's not just a sinner who knows they're a sinner. It's a sinner who experiences a true sense of his sin. The weightiness of his sin rests upon his heart and upon his shoulders. He knows not only that he's a sinner, but that God is so holy that his sin is so foul before the Lord. Now, if that was all it said, a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, well, that might make legalists of us all, wouldn't it? What I need to do is I need to fight my sin by doing more good things. That's how I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to repent by turning from my sin to the law. I'm going to turn from my sin to a pattern of behavior. I'm going to turn from my sin to a new way of living. But the confession or the catechism doesn't say that. It says with a true sense of a sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Now, if that's all it said, we'd be a bunch of antinomians, wouldn't we? Oh, the mercy of God, the mercy of God, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But rather, the catechism says we know that we're gross sinners in need of a Savior and that God has made a way for us in his Son, Jesus Christ. And it holds both of them together, both of them together, not in tension, but as bedfellows together, a hatred for sin and an apprehension of God's mercy. When a sinner out of a true sense of a sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus doth with grief and hatred for his sin, not grief and hatred over the consequences of his sin, not disliking the difficulty that sin creates in his or her life, not disliking the embarrassment that getting caught sin makes them feel, but real grief before God and true hatred for their sin the way that God hates sin. Doth turn from it, Oh, that's repentance. We've been told how many times that repentance is turning away from sin. No, it's not. Do you know how many degrees there are in a circle? 360. Well, if God is up here at zero, or 360, however you prefer it, and sin is down here at 180, there are literally 340, uh, 358 degrees to which you could turn that aren't zero. Repentance is not turning from 180 to 90 i guess that's your 270 isn't it or from 180 to 90 over here repentance is turning from your sin unto god there's a full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience aiming your life targeting your life and your life toward god that's what repentance is and when john says repent he's telling us not to turn from our sin to something not as bad as that sin or even to the law But unto God, repent for the kingdom is here. Who's the king of the kingdom? That's Christ. And he's saying, turn from your sin to Christ Jesus. That's the only way for your heart to be prepared for the king. Plenty of people, by their own efforts, turn from bad habits and sin unto something better. AA does this for people. Give up your alcohol uh, addiction and stop drinking that's not turning unto christ that's turning away from sin and sometimes we think that's good enough i heard the story one time we all know the boy who cried wolf right story of the boy who cried wolf he's out watching the the town folks sheep in the field and he's bored one night and so he cries wolf wolf and all the townspeople rush out to see what's going on and they find out that he's lying and so they get mad and they go back to their business and then several hours pass and he's bored again and he cries out wolf wolf and all the townspeople come running to protect the sheep, and they all bring their weapons to protect the sheep, and it turns out he was lying again. Well, then the third time, when the wolf actually shows up and the boy cries, wolf, what happens? No one believes him. And what are children told that the moral of that story is? Never tell a lie. Well, I heard someone once say, no, it's not. The moral of that story is never tell the same lie three times. That's not repentance. Repentance. That's simply stopping doing things that are unwise and foolish and bad for you. And we can do that plenty of times of our own effort. But repentance unto life, repentance unto life, prepare your heart for the Lord, repentance unto Jesus Christ is a turning from sin unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience because we hate our sin like he does, but because we love Jesus Christ. That's repentance. This is what John is preaching. He's telling the people that they're sinners. He's telling them that they need to repent, and that implies sin. And so, what we need to prepare our hearts for Jesus is a real, clear proclamation about the reality of sin and of repentance. But John doesn't just prepare the way for Jesus or for sinners, excuse me, he doesn't just prepare the way for Jesus by preaching repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan River. He also warns against false conversion. Notice in verses 7 through 10, he speaks to the religious leaders of the day, all these religious types who love the rituals and traditions of religiosity, the Pharisees and Sadducees who love to have the place of prominence at feasts and wear the long robes with the tassels and the vestments and all of those things. And he speaks to them. They love to be seen doing religious things and to gain attention. Perhaps you know people like that. Perhaps you are someone like that. You go to every worship service, every Bible study, every event. You volunteer to wash the dishes and to take out the trash and to chaperone youth events. And none of it's because you love the Lord or you love hearing his word or you love serving people, but because you love to be seen loving the Lord and hearing his word and serving his people. And that's what religion provides us. And that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were known for. They love the position, positions of prominence. And they love the applause. And you can imagine how much they would have loved to hear all of their followers say, oh, look at Rabbi Benjamin having water poured over his head. Isn't he so repentant? And John speaks directly to this false conversion approach to repentance and forgiveness. He calls them a brood of vipers. Now, that term's associated with Satan, isn't it? To be called a snake in Scripture is not a, a, a compliment. And so John says to these brood of vipers that uh, their heart's intent is far from God. You presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, he says in verse 9. They're relying on their religion. They're relying on their ethnic heritage. They're relying on their circumcision. They're not actually turning unto the living God in repentance, are they? That's important for us to know that this particular ritual that John was doing here, this baptism in the river of the Jordan would have scandalized the Pharisees and Sadducees. Baptism was a ritual reserved for Gentiles who were coming into the Jewish religion. They had to be baptized publicly to demonstrate their awareness of their sin and need for cleansing. And so for John to tell the Jewish people that they needed to be baptized would have implied to them that they were unclean, that they were the ones that needed to be cleansed to come into the presence of God, and that would have horrified them to hear. To hear that Abraham is their father is not enough. To hear that circumcision is not enough. To hear that their ethnic heritage or having the law memorized or having practiced all the religious ceremonies is not enough. Why? Because God can cause stones to be raised up as children of Abraham. He can write his law on stones with his finger and he can even wash stones in the Jordan River if he wants to. All those things are externals. None of those things speak to the reality of our heart, do they? There's a threat of false conversion then and there is now as well. Sinners come to Christ by repenting in faith. And false converts come to Christ by doing all the things that they believe someone who comes to Christ should do. In Christ, you and I are children of Abraham, aren't we? We're like these stones John sort of references in verse 9. We're like those whose hearts were made of stone until God replaced them with hearts of flesh and put his spirit within us. And as Paul says in Galatians, we've been made into children of Abraham by faith because he's the father of all those who have faith. So we don't need circumcision. We don't need the religious ceremonies. We don't need all the things that the Pharisees loved so much. And we certainly don't presume upon any of them. Instead, we look just at Christ. What John is against here is the false conversions that say, I know all the details and I keep the ceremonies, and they serve as my source of assurance. They are my foundation of confidence. My faithful church attendance will give me confidence on the day of judgment. And so I ask you, are you trusting in ritual and ceremony, my friends? Are you trusting in your faithful church attendance? In your disciplined Bible reading every morning? In your family worship time? In how neatly you dress for corporate worship on the Lord's Day? And how rarely you go to the gas station for a soda on the way home? Is that what you're trusting in? All that can do is offer you false assurance. False assurance. And it's the sort of false assurance that's clung to by people who may not truly have repented and turned to Christ. Nothing, top lady tells us, in my hands I bring. Simply to what? Thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless i look to thee for faith foul i to the fountain fly the fountain of christ's blood wash me savior or i die there's nothing about external religiosity in those words are there and there's nothing about them in john's message here don't miss the urgency in john's message repent the kingdom of heaven is here now Repent, because every tree that does not bear fruit, the axe is already laid to its root, and it's good for nothing but to be thrown into the fire. John, his message is urgent. The axe is already laid to the root of the tree. They are only fit to be burned up. John is asking us the question, do we think so little about the judgment of God that we mock him while he calls us to repentance? Look at what he says about Christ in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat, that's the good stuff, into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. He says that in the context of his message to repent. How little, how little must we think of the judgment of God to hear His call to repentance and yet do nothing. John does not mince his words at all. He is very clear. Do you know what awaits us, the other side of this life? The throne of Jesus Christ. And on the one hand, his wheat will be gathered in, stored forever in his barn in glory. And everything else, everyone else, is like chaff, to be burned up with unquenchable fire. How little must we regard the holiness of God to hear his call to repentance and yet do nothing. Do you know what we need to prepare our hearts for the Lord, to make straight the paths in our hearts? We need to talk clearly about sin. And we need to warn ourselves and be warned against false conversion. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, look at my McShane reading plan. Lord, Lord, look at my church attendance roster. Lord, Lord, look at my tax return. Every year for the last 55 years, 10% without fail. They'll say, get away from me. You didn't know me, and I certainly don't know you. Are you hearing John's message loud and clear tonight? Children, do you hear what John the Baptist is saying to you? He's saying repent. Not dislike the consequences of sin. Not fear the judgment of God. But take God's perspective about sin. Think of it in light of his holiness and how offensive it is. Learn to hate your sin the way that he does But more than that, to love Jesus Christ, the mercy of God made manifest to us in the person of Jesus Christ and turn from our sin to him, not away from our sin to something more neutral, but away from our sin to him with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, living lives that are fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, as John says, and increasing in our knowledge of God, as Paul says in Colossians do you hear the call to repentance young people children do you know that that's what god is calling each of us to each man and woman and boy and girl who will hear his call to repentance because the other side of repentance is eternal life it sounds so heavy to talk about repentance because of judgment doesn't it and it is because it's a really serious thing to fall into the hands of a living god but the message is far greater than repent because you're a nasty sinner. It's repent because Jesus has sent because God has sent an amazing savior. And the benefits of repentance are eternal life, eternity with God in heaven, forever and ever in his presence. All of your sins washed away be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt. I'm no longer guilty before God and of its power. I'm no longer enslaved to my sin. What freedom there is in repentance. It's not a burden of letting go of the sin that I love. It's the freedom of laying hold of the Christ who loves me. That's what repentance is. And that's what we're called to. That's what John says here. We prepare our hearts by speaking clearly about sin and warning against false conversions. And lastly, our hearts are prepared as we point men and women to Christ alone. Look at verses 11 and 12. John summarizes very briefly his ministry. I baptize you with water for repentance as a sign, he says, of repentance. But he who is coming after me, he's mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandal. And he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's who Jesus is. And John quickly points them to him. He minimizes his own ministry in order to maximize the glory of Christ. He who's coming is mightier than I. This undoubtedly points not only to the power of Jesus and the majesty of his ministry, but the inherent weakness and limitations of John's ministry. John is just a man with a voice proclaiming repentance, but it's the spirit of Christ that gives life. And John knows that. It's not that John's ministry was nothing. Of course, he was sent in the power of Elijah by the Spirit of God to prepare the way for Jesus, and his ministry was quite significant. Jesus himself says, of all the Old Testament prophets, none was greater than John the Baptist. But all of his power, all of his success, all of his significance was derived. It was borrowed. It was external. But Christ alone is inherently majestic, and so we point people to him. Christ alone is king, so we tell people about his rule. Christ alone offers forgiveness, so we send people humbly before his feet. Christ alone is our teacher, so we simply explain the things that he taught. And Christ alone is our savior, so we help people find him. Far too many pastors today want to magnify themselves To show off their great knowledge, to dress in a way that captures attention, to speak in a way that gains recognition. What does John say in John 3, 30? I must decrease and he must increase. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but simply to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. He goes on in Colossians chapter 2 to say one of the most amazing statements, one of the most counterintuitive statements about pastoral ministry ever written in the history of writing about pastoral ministry. If you were to take a hundred books off a shelf today about pastoral ministry, you would find very little that says what Paul's about to say to you tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Beware, my friends, of anyone who wants to make a name for himself and not a name for Christ and his church. Beware of anyone who shows off his linguistic or theological chops for his reputation's sake and doesn't show off Christ to you. Beware of anyone who desires to be known rather than desiring that Christ alone be known among you. Sinclair Ferguson, who's one of the greatest theologians of the last hundred years, one of the greatest pastors and preachers and teachers of our generation, is written countless books and spoken at countless conferences and pastored uh, wonderful churches around even in our denomination over the last 40 years he's now semi-retired and he serves as the stated evening preacher at a little tiny church plant in glasgow and when asked why he took that position speaking of his senior minister who is half his age he said so i could give my pastor a break sometimes what humility In this interview I listened to with Sinclair Ferguson, he used the phrase, when I am gone and happily forgotten. And I thought, who's going to forget Sinclair Ferguson? My friends, that's the posture we should all take about life and all men should take about ministry. When I'm dead and happily forgotten and the only people who remember my name are those with whom I share some DNA, remember Christ because he's all that matters. We prepare men's hearts and women's hearts for Christ by magnifying him, by pointing to Christ alone, because he alone deserves all the glory. He alone deserves center stage. We ministers and preachers and prophets of old are simply supporting cast, wearing black robes so we can move around on stage without being noticed. John says, I can't even carry a sandal. He alone is the Holy Spirit. He brings fire and judgment. I'm just the messenger. I'm just the messenger. Ask yourself a question as we enter into this season of pastoral search at Christ Covenant Church. Are we looking for a man or are we looking for Christ? Are we looking for a man who speaks well and who gets our affections all riled up? Or are we looking for someone who presents Christ to us faithfully, pointing us to Him week by week, sermon by sermon? He alone deserves our attention. He alone has saved us. His gospel alone brings life. His forgiveness alone grants assurance of our eternal state. We need Christ here. And we need to look for someone and pray for someone who points us just to Christ, simply to Christ. Well, the church is made up of all kinds, isn't it? And it's unquestionable that in these last days there will be true and there will be false converts in the church. Many of them will be remarkably similar to one another. Faithful attenders at worship, faithfully tithing, faithful in their marriage, kind to their children, avoiding the excesses of Christian liberty, charitable and hospitable. But the tares look a lot like wheat until it's all grown up. And all fish fish look like good fish when they're still in the net. To which group do you belong? Has your heart been prepared to receive her king? Have you dealt seriously with the weight of your own sin and the judgment it deserves? Have you reconciled your life with your confession of faith? Do they align? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? And is Christ magnified in your heart above all things? My friends, I pray that he is. I pray that he is. If John the last and greatest prophet could say, I am unworthy to even untie his sandal. How do you think we ought to approach the living God? In humility, in repentance, and by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Would you grant each person here true repentance by your saving grace, that we might hate our sin, love our Savior, and turn from the former to the latter, that we might experience eternal life in him alone. Amen.